Hello, Yuma. I'm Quentin Grafton, Professor of Economics at the Australian National University and the convener of the Water Justice Hub, a platform for truth-telling and justice for all in relation to water. In this spirit of justice and reconciliation, we also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia on which this podcast has been produced and honour their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. The Water Justice Hub is a place for everyone, especially First Peoples, to promote their voice and respond to the global challenges of delivering sustainable development and water for all. This podcast is an initiative to represent water warriors and their stories from around the world, sharing ideas and narratives to assist in education, advocacy and water policy. Along this series, you will hear from a variety of voices promoting fluid conceptions of water justice as critical to the survival of individuals and also to our collective survival. Please listen with intent. Subscribe and share this podcast to assist in the fight for independent voices, equitable decision-making, and ultimately, water justice for all. Next in our series, we uncover the complexities of water in Asia. As the world's largest continent, water in Asia is diverse, and so are the ideas that govern it. In this episode, we will hear some innovative conceptions of water justice, as well as look into the heart of Southeast Asia with the mighty Mekong River. The Mekong's many dams have dramatically altered natural flow regimes, affecting economies, water security, and ecology. The path to dealing with the Mekong River's competing interests is not clear, fortunately, The water warriors featured in this episode give us insight into alleviating pressures on water. Expanding on water governance, we explore how the United Nations influences water justice in Asia. And to inspire our mission for water justice, we are enlightened about innovative ideas on water utility, management in India, where servicing a population of over 1.3 billion people is no simple task. Thanks, Quentin. Tim and I had some great conversations with water warriors in Asia for this episode. Asia's diverse ecosystems have different water needs and, of course, different strains and stresses. As in many parts of the world, one of the most difficult things is balancing the interests of many countries over water resources when water doesn't know about state line boundaries. To understand how water resources are distributed fairly or unfairly for countries in Asia, requires an understanding of what water security is. Water is of concern to everyday people, of course, but industry, neighbouring countries and bodies like the United Nations have a persuasive say in how water is governed too. These competing interests make water a complex topic in Asia, so we spoke to someone with experience at the United Nations to gain insight into how the national and international politics of water impact water security. What is the roles and responsibility of government, civil society and private sector? These are three important elements which interact with each other to solve the water problems or water challenges. How well they interact with each other to solve a water challenge or a water problem makes it sustainable water governance. Chitresh Saraswat is a doctoral scholar with the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the Australian National University. Focused on water sustainability in the Global South, Chitresh has experience with industry and governance internationally and has been a researcher for the United Nations University Institute of Advanced Studies in Tokyo. 
with innovative contributions to the fields of water management, security and governance in Asia, Chitrish was our first stop in discovering how water justice could be conceptualised across this diverse continent. Thank you for joining us on the Water Justice Podcast, Chitrish Saraswat. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. We'd love to start talking about Asia. If you could explain the idea of water security, does it extend beyond making sure it is there tomorrow? Yes, uh, it's a very, very interesting question. How I perceive water security is basically everybody, not only human beings, everybody receive amount of water which is required for them. So through different readings and my research as well, I divide water security in five dimensions. First dimension is household water security. That means access of water to community, people who are living. Then I talk about urban water security, urban regions. And we all know that by 2050, urban regions will be like completely filled spaces. There will be Sydney and there will be greater Sydney areas. So I mean to say that there will be like huge expansion in urban population. So in urban water security includes all kinds of efforts that in, in urban areas, people receive right amount of water and not only people, the communities, flora and fauna, environmental. Then this leads us to the next one is environmental water security, the water for plants, the water for lakes. We shouldn't just take all the water out of rivers that for our use only, we should only take what is required for us and how we can be more recycled and sustainable in that reason. Fourth one is resilience to water disasters. Water-related disasters are becoming frequent because of climate change, and we all understand that precipitation patterns are changing. In in short period, we have huge floods, a huge amount of rain, and that leads to surge in stormwater and and surge in rainwater. And at similar time, another part of the same country is suffering from droughts. So right amount of water and how we can manage that, that comes into it, uh, the resilience to water disasters. And the final one is economic water security. I mean, water is not only a free commodity, and it's it's widely acknowledged now that it has an economic value as well. So I say in this five dimensions, I believe the water security comes. So yes, it's also about like having enough water for future, but at the same time, it's, it's more about how we manage it now. So we always be in the sphere of water security. Thanks. So water security has many facets, but can we ask you to talk how water security relates to water governance? For example, what does sustainable water governance look like? Thank you, Kate. Then I think about the governance. Uh, It's actually varies in different, different places. So when I think water governance in developed countries. It's it's completely different as a concept in the developing countries. So my experience in developing countries is for them, how they manage their water very well. And when I say how they manage means they are not thinking about, they create practices which will help them to sustain this water for future. But for them is how they solve the problem at that moment. So right now, if they don't have water, which is a basic big problem in most of the places that water availability is a problem or, or water scarcity is an issue. So how they can bring the water. So that's why we see a difference of engineering approach, more focused in developed countries and in developing countries and in developed countries, exactly opposite is more soft approaches. But how I see water governance is a set of social relations or a system that determines who gets water, when and how. So this is very, very basic. Again, we can find a lot of academic definitions of it when it's a set of regulation, it's institutional dynamics and multi, multiple things. But the basic way of looking governance is 
institutions or system which determines who get water and how. So that's, that's come into the picture of water governance. And when we say sustainable water governance, how sustainable it is, but the crucial part of it is improving water access and sanitation services for all the dimensions which I explained in the water security dimensions of it. And again, it's not only that governing water is very difficult. It's because water itself, we cannot compare it with some other kind of commodities. You need establishment and implementation of different kinds of water policies, irrespective of which region are you in, uh, legislations and uh, different kinds of institutions. For example, in the developing countries, water threat is a big problem. What is water threat? How can you steal something which is freely available? But that is a biggest problem for the utilities working there and government water theft. And completely in, in developed world, it's, it's a completely different problem. So that's why I say sustainable water governance, how I perceive it, is completely different and based on the different region. And that's how we need to like foster our solution or develop our solution tailored to the location. That's certainly you no know, easy task to make sure that everyone gets what they want. So how do you bridge the gaps between you know industry, research, policymakers? Uh, they all sort of have different opinions about what should happen. Certainly the environment, uh, as you say, and sustainable governance is a factor. It's very difficult to make sure that everyone gets what, what they want. I mean, some people might not deserve what they want in the sense that it might not be a reasonable expectation of our water resources. It's, it's a very interesting question. It's, it's, it's basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a research question, which currently I'm working on. And, and my focus is basically how we can improve the dynamics between private and government to solve the water challenges. There is a biggest, big, big uh, perception problem, which I see in the developing countries, especially in South Asia and Southeast Asia, is they don't perceive privatization of any kind of commodities or even smaller amount of operations, they perceive it as a threat. They think that private sector is going to eat up all the resources and, and it's, it's just going to think about profit. That's where government comes into the picture. If government is dedicated for this solution and create the right regulations or implement the right regulation, that would be very helpful for private sector to act in where they can make profit, but at the same time, they solve the problem. Now, why the private sector or academia or why universities become important here? Universities are the source of innovation. And I strongly believe that because I mean, from PhD to master's to any other courses to postdocs and whatnot, they all are working to solve one problem from the different, with the different ideas and, and different, it's a source of innovation. In sustainable theories, we call it a niche. This is the part where all innovations happen. Now, the problem is it stays there only in that small bubble. How we can bring them out to the right places, to the practices. That's where I think the collaboration is very important. So as far as the governments in any places, local, national, or even international, that could go on. But how the collaborations happen, how these partnerships are happening are very, very important. That's, that brings us to this uh, question of private actors. Private actors are most important thing in current society because if you see these are the companies or, or these are the people who are giving jobs to everyone else so they are very important now the perception change is it's a difficult and a long process it's going to take that time but a strong assurance from government or a strong 
binding principle or a protocol help them to work effectively and how they can do it. So it's, it's more now become partnerships. So public-private partnerships. This is, this is the focus of my research anyways, which I'm working right now, that how public-private partnership effectively improve the water services. And my initial results in my research shows that it's, it's really important, like in a very short period of time, which can government, which the government can achieve a result in a certain amount of time, help of private sector, we can reduce this time with almost half or a or, or little bit more than that. And that's pretty good. One city which I'm working on, they didn't have 24-7 water supply for forever. And when government have these rules and regulations set up a form of contract and private sector come into picture, in last seven years, in just seven years, the whole city is now 24-7 running water, which solves a lot of problems. And that's just an example. And when we bridge these gaps, then we'll see that whole machinery of governance, which we talk about, works more effectively and the faster. Can I relate this back to your prior experience with the UN? How, how do these kind of international bodies play into this whole dynamic? You've got several levels of governance now. I am a big supporter of uh, international organizations. I, I can't say enough that how United Nations is important. Let me start with an example. So in 2015, UN Sustainable Development Goal was adopted by 163 countries. And that just gives us an idea of how enormous impact of United Nations has. And today, you will see worldwide people know about the 17 different sustainable development goals. Start from number one to 17. They cover almost everything which is needed for humanity to survive well in coming next decades, multiple decades. So I think this shows the power of an international organization. And UN has this ability to bring this number of stakeholders or member countries to sit together and actually talks about these 17 different goals and then find out multiple levels in it and make sure that everybody signed that and they're going to go back in their countries and they're going to make those changes. So for example, in India, because... By 2030, there is a deadline for sustainable development goal, and I'm going to specifically talk about SDG 6, which is related to water. In India, they have huge institutional changes. So previously, we used to have one ministry for rivers, one ministry for cleaning waters, and, and it goes to a different one, and one for something else. And everything was like quite scattered in different places. After this, I think in 2017 or 18, everything was related to the water in one ministry. And that showed in the progress which India is making in the water goals. You will see the number of the water access is increasing in overall country. The reliable sources of water is getting better. An ideology now that we need to be more innovative. So just an idea how uh, international organization can have this impact that in one country, they change their institutions to solve a problem just a small example then then you will see a lot of different others like adb they publish uh, different reports and they, these reports are taken very seriously ipcc we all know and as soon as ipcc reports are published and we all get very excited and it's like what's going on and what we need to do how we need to find out which solution we need to find out and everybody's focusing on that so i think their role become very very important and very significant and very timely to drive this research agendas to 
given perspective to policymakers to create this system for us to think about future generation. Otherwise, we will not work on one agenda and everybody's doing something else and <laughs> I don't know which direction we are going. So streamlining that is something these organizations are really good and very important. Certainly when it comes to uh, water security and the importance of water for all, there is a role for international organizations to play because I think everyone is in this together, even though it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So having those normative frameworks provided by the organizations like the United Nations and checks and balances can be very important. Thanks so much for your time today, Chitra Saraswat. With our new understanding of water security, it was clear that the many claims to transboundary water were also energy and national security issues. When resources as large as the Mekong River are shared across multiple countries, the effects of water management quickly create complexity. As countries can be defined as upstream and downstream, what one country does significantly impacts what is left for the others. The Mekong River is a source of subsistence and energy for people, and is essential to ecosystems and their inhabitants. So when tensions between custodians of the Mekong play out, most, if not all, of Asia is affected by the consequences. So they're being robbed, really, of, of their livelihoods by consumers far flung away from them. And it's being driven by you know, large infrastructure projects that are orientation or the motivation of those large infrastructure projects comes from the capitals. It comes out of Beijing, it comes out of Kunming in China, it comes out of Bangkok. And those capitals don't have to deal with any of the problems. And then they're far away. They're on the periphery. They're, they're far away from them. Brian Eiler is an expert on the cooperation between upstream China and the Southeast Asian countries downstream of the mighty Mekong River. Director of the Southeast Asia Program and the Energy, Water and Sustainability Program at the Simpson Center and the author of The Last Days of the Mighty Mekong, Brian is considered the leading voice on security issues in the Mekong. Brian is the co-lead of the award-winning Mekong Dam Monitor, making him the perfect water warrior to help us understand the impacts of dams on such an important river. Brian joined the Water Justice podcast to tell the story of the Mekong and propose how justice could be pursued for a large part of Asia. We're joined by Brian Isla. Thank you very much for joining us, Brian. Pleasure to be here, Tim. Brian, could you tell us about what's happening in the Mekong? Well, the Mekong's going through some tough times. And when I say the Mekong, I'm talking about the, the basin or the watershed of the Mekong River, which runs from China through Laos, through a small part of Myanmar, through Cambodia, Thailand, and Vietnam. And, you know, it's a mighty river system on which tens of millions rely for their livelihoods. You know, they pull fish out of the river, they grow cash crops and subsistence crops along the riverside for their own livelihood. And yeah, things haven't been good. There's a string of three years of drought. And I guess when I talk about drought, I want to focus on the wet season drought, like when it's supposed to be raining, it hasn't been raining. And that's really contributing to this lack of what I call the mightiness of the Mekong, this wet season flood pulse that makes the river high and really, really wet and causes floods throughout parts of the Mekong that should be flooding. Those floods haven't been happening because of, again, a lack of rain over the last three years during the wet season and the impacts of upstream dams that are bringing that, that flood pulse down. And it's reducing fish catches, it's reducing rice yields, it's reducing shrimp harvests, uh, all sorts of challenges. And, and like I said, this is like directly impacting tens of millions of people, their diets, their wallets, 
And if it gets really bad, it's going to affect regional security. I don't think we've gotten there yet, but you can't repeat these things too many times in a row before something starts to break. Mm. So all those countries that I mentioned, with the exception of Myanmar, have built dams on the Mekong or have dams in their parts of the Mekong. China is a big actor, you know, in international relations, we use the word actors, someone was doing something in building lots of dams in its own territory and then building dams abroad, most particularly in Laos and, and a few in Cambodia. And these dams, I mean, there are over 400 dams now that are built throughout the entirety of the basin. China's got something like 126 in its territory. 11 of them are mainstream dams. They're some of the largest dams in the world. But Thailand's got like 150 plus hydropower dams and irrigation dams, flood control dams. And I think Vietnam's got 78. And I mean, these are kind of big numbers for part of the world that relies on the natural flow of water to sustain those fisheries and, and agricultural yields. So it's complicated. You know, China's got two of the biggest dams upstream. They're two of the largest dams in the world in terms of the amount of water that they can hold and the amount of hydropower they can produce. Those things are kind of, they run together, you know, big reservoirs, big hydropower production. And those two dams are enough to change that, that natural wet season pulse of the Mekong. But again, all these other countries are building lots of dams. Um, Laos has, uh, I think, about 50 more dams under construction and wants to build over 200 dams in its plans. So they're delivering a, a death of a thousand cuts to the mighty Mekong, and there's very little coordination among the governments to think about ways to cope with the changes that are happening and to prevent the impacts from dams, which is really unfortunate. What happens when you change that wet season pulse? Like, How does it mm-hmm. impact the, the river and people? So a good place to focus on is the Tonle Sap in Cambodia. The Tonle Sap is a lake. It's Southeast Asia's largest lake. It's off to the one side of the Mekong mainstream uh, in eastern Cambodia, it connects to the Mekong mainstream by a tributary called the Tonle Sap River. And the Tonle Sap Lake is the world's largest inland fishery. It's responsible for producing 500,000 tons a year of fish. It's really impressive. In fact, the Mekong itself produces 2.6 million tons of fish per year. And where I live here in North America, all of Canada's, United States and Mexico's Rivers and lakes combined do 13 times less than what the Mekong One River does for fisheries production. So the Tonle Sap, it kind of acts like the beating heart of the Mekong. Each year when the wet season happens, so much water comes down through the basin. And when that that water, again, you you get these high levels and it's it's just brimming with water. When that water reaches Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia, it hits that tributary that drains out of the Tonle Sap Lake. And it causes the tributary to reverse direction, sending 50 times the amount of water that's in there during the dry season back up into the lake. And that's that heartbeat. You get this massive expansion of water. The lake size itself expands five times. And when that expansion comes, the fish come in, sediment comes in, and that helps form the building blocks of the food system of, of, that the fish feed on. And and lots of other good stuff comes in that just results in this massive explosion of life. So you get lots of fish being born and growing large in that lake. And then when the contraction happens with the dry season, they go out, they move. And, and this is actually the large, the world's largest movement of biomass. Um, it's, it's more biomass movement or migration of, of living things than the Serengeti 
migration, you know, you're, where you're seeing the wildebeests and all the animals moving across the Serengeti. You just can't see it in the Mekong because it's underwater, but it's happening. Those fish leave and they go upstream to Laos and they used to go up to China before dams block their way. They go up into Thailand. They, they take a, a left turn and go into Northeast Thailand and some of them take a right turn and go down to Vietnam. And that's what produces the world's largest fish catch for a single river. And then something like 20 to 25% of all the world's freshwater fish production comes out of the Mekong. Whenever dams and, and low flows are happening, when dams are operating in a way that restrict the water during the wet season, that's what they do. They're charging the reservoirs during the wet season because they've like spent all of their water during the dry season to produce hydropower. They got to recharge again. That brings down the pulse. It weakens the pulse, if you will. And it really, in these bad years, it puts the lake and the Mekong itself on life support. So the pulse just is flatlining. And it's happened three years in a row now. So again, it's, it's something that can only repeat itself too many times before some crises begin to break out. And my team, we, we watch the Mekong, we watch reservoirs, we try to promote smarter water management policies and alternatives to dams. But the other thing we watch for are these tipping points and these breaking points. And I do fear that one's around the corner. And when that happens, uh, a lot of the regional stability that's come together over the last 30 years could fall apart. Is this creating tensions within countries? Yeah, it is. So the dams that are being built, most of them are for hydropower production. And most of them send power far away from where the dams are. Actually far away from where the people pull fish out of the, the rivers. So the beneficiaries of the hydropower production, you know, like malls in Bangkok or manufacturing centers in the east coast of China, they're far away from the problem. They reap the benefits. They don't have to deal with any of the external problems. And then the external issues are born on the, the people of the Mekong that, you know, the, the kind of the heart of the geography of the Mekong is Laos and Cambodia. And these are least developed countries rapid growth trajectories, but still poor, cash poor, millions of people that rely on natural resources for their getting by day to day. So it's hard even for the decision makers to understand the scale of what the difficulty that people are going through. You know, Thailand is the largest investor in hydropower dams in Laos with projects under construction or completed or in the pipeline. It's like four times more than what China is building. These are all foreign invested projects in Laos. So I think Thailand has something like 120, China's got 40, so three times more. And Thailand, though, being kind of a nearby country and something like 35% of Thailand's territories in the Mekong Basin does have citizens that feel the brunt of hydropower impact. So Thailand's government has been signaling a lack of interest in further investment in the dams that it signed up for. I mean, it's a complicated situation. Like Thailand also has a huge excess of power domestically. So that kind of helps an argument against future dams in Laos and future dams that Thailand invests in in Laos across the Mekong mainstream. And my team watches that the politics play out and we try to get in there and talk to those that are exploring alternatives and offer alternatives, promoting solar, promoting more efficient uses of energy within the country that says, you know, you really don't need to build more dams. And uh, civil society is hard at play and has been working diligently and tenaciously in Thailand, pushing back against dams, taking dam builders that are tied to court in Thailand, holding up the letter of the 1995 Mekong Agreement to Thai decision makers and say, here's where you're crossing the line. 
the folks that I watch and learn from the most are the civil society activists in Thailand. And, and most of them are in Chiang Rai province in Thailand. And then and they're all grassroots people doing really, really great work. And to highlight an example, not necessarily dam related, but river related, in early 2020, the Thai cabinet canceled a rapids blasting project in the Golden Triangle on the Thai-Lao border that would have been done by the Chinese. Chinese engineers were gonna come out of China hundreds of miles away to pave way for large scale cargo trade up and down the river. But these activists have been pushing back for two decades with really concerted and effective collective action. And they won, they were able to bring the Chinese builders to the table, the engineers to the table, bring Chinese authorities to the table, bring Thai government authorities to the table all at once. And through several rounds of consultations, they just convinced everybody it was a really bad idea. So the, the Chinese backed away from it first by sending a note to the Thai foreign ministry and then the Thai foreign ministry you know, went through the procedures to have the project canceled. So that was a, a string of a few victories on the Mekong recently. You mentioned the importance of transparency and information sharing. In terms of a pathway forward, what are the most important things from here? In terms of information sharing, my team launched the Mekong Dam Monitor about a year ago, which uses satellites and social media to provide kind of a full spectrum of transparency on dam operations and reservoir levels throughout the entirety of the Mekong. And that, for the first time, let people know what was happening up in China. And we see government authorities, we see civil society groups taking our data and putting it to good use to improve their negotiation position with China. I just finished a paper today where I counted the times that the Mekong River Commission, which is an intergovernmental authority that is tasked to oversee the development of the Mekong, I counted the times that they called on China to release more data after we launched the Mekong Dam Monitor. And they did it five times like in a year because we pointed at things where China should be sharing information and China should be notifying the downstream countries and they're not. And the kind of the most heinous times, the Mekong River Commission just put up the red flag and said, hey, you gotta share your data. And that was the real increase in frequency of calls for more data from China by the MRC. So there's a lot happening. It's a complex situation. It's complex because there is no simple pathway of communication to manage the river system, which is, Again, unfortunate, but with so many countries wanting to dam the river, China, the big neighbor upstream, that's totally not transparent. That's, there is no simple solution to any of this. Mm. Is there like shining examples? Of- yeah, Cambodia at COP26, uh, their environment minister, who's done some really impressive stuff in, in Cambodia. His name is Sai Samong. He's a water specialist, PhD trained, I think, in the United States, and an expert on the Tonle Sap. He announced that no more mainstream dams will be built in Cambodia on the Mekong because they know, like, they're a total Mekong country, something like 85% of their territory is in the Mekong basin. So, what happens to the Mekong affects them. What happens to the Tonle Sap affects the Cambodian diet. And I've talked to countless government officials in Cambodia that are really worried about the future of the river and hold positions in opposition to, to more dams. Right. I have a quick question. Do you have a hopeful vision for the future? My team, we've got two products. We've got the Mekong Dam Monitor and we've got the Mekong Infrastructure Tracker. And the, the tracker counts the numbers of dams that have been built. I think before we knew how many dams were out there, we had 
a lot of optimism that solar could replace future dams and wind could replace future dams so that they didn't have to be built. But soaring around on the satellite imagery, counting these dams, it's just, there are a lot. And the fisheries are depleting in a way that, that scare me. I am hopeful, you know, I'm hopeful, like I'm hopeful about climate change, that, that we can make a transition to renewable energy that will reduce carbon emissions significantly in the future. But it's like, can we do it fast enough to prevent the temperature rise that's gonna you know, ruin us all? That transition could be made in the Mekong, but it might not happen fast enough that something horrible doesn't break out. And so I, you know, I am optimistic. I see lots of ways forward. I think it's unfortunately going to take some pretty dire environmental crises to kick the right people into gear to say, we've got to change what we're doing. You know, as a Mekong watcher and as the head of a team that cares a lot about this river, we're going to keep watching and we're dedicated to it. And, you know, when that dire situation plays out, we're going to be there as much then as we are now. Brian, thanks so much for talking to the Water Justice Podcast. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. And follow our Mekong Dam Monitor on, on Twitter and Facebook and the Mekong Infrastructure Tracker. You can Google that and learn all about the things that are happening to the river. And as many countries negotiate the complexities of transboundary water, citizens live with the consequences whenever they use electrical energy or water from a tap or when they farm for food. Ultimately, water security comes down to how people interact with water every day. Involvement in water management happens at the government policy level through to the household level. India has the largest democratic population in the world and has the potential to illustrate to the world how distributing water can be efficient, just and empowering. So I looked at the infrastructure also, you know, how are they built? Because many of the buildings are also asked to do their own sewage treatment because the utility has put their hands up and said, you know, we cannot have the capacity to manage your sewage. So you are on your own. So it was very interesting for me to see what in Australia, we would take it to extreme to actually see it in things happening on individual apartment community premise. Dr. Bhakti Devi is an advocate for empowering water users to understand and manage their water. Having obtained her PhD at the University of Western Sydney, Bhakti brought her unique research to Sydney Water as a livability strategist. When she returned to India, she became known as the urban water doctor. Bhakti has leveraged her engineering and sustainability expertise to help urban communities to use water wisely. Simple solutions allow water users to have greater control of water security in their buildings. Bhakti has empowered communities at the micro scale, leading to progress at the macro scale. Tim and I interviewed Bhakti for insight into water in India and the interesting developments in decentralized water management. Thank you for joining us, Bhakti Devi. Thank you, Tim. Well, it's an absolute privilege to have you here. Kat, my co-host, has put me onto your work and it's been really educational for me to have read some of that, but I'd love to know what your mm-hmm. challenges are. Like, Where does the water literacy start in somewhere like yes. India? And then how are mm-hmm. the situations that people are in taken for granted? Yeah. Okay. So my background has been working in the area of sustainable water management my interest has been deepened with, uh, you know, how do we make decentralized water systems happen? And how do we make sure that it is community-led? 
It is community owned. It is quite challenging to do that. So decentralized water is all about trying to create water systems, water services very close to where the rain falls, while also taking advantage of other water resources that might be available within the local area. So it's a very local solution and it is more sustainable because the centralized system that traditionally, historically, all cities of the world, almost all cities of the world are on, uh, has reached its capacity. So it is really stretching it and they have done their efficiency capacity is almost done. So unless we start to complement them with the decentralized water systems, it is going to be very hard to keep up with the demand in a very sustainable way. So that is the reason for uh, promoting decentralized. So, but then having said that, decentralized is also cannot happen until the local uh, municipality, local community starts to engage. And what has happened with the centralized system An unintended consequence of the centralized system is water consumers are disconnected, disengaged, because the entire centralized system has been designed for efficiency, has been designed for compliance, which actually has uh, inevitably disconnected, which means uh, consumers don't need to know about how the water comes to their tap and where it goes. So given that is a situation almost in all parts of the world, in all cities, Water literacy is actually a rampant problem, uh, lack of water literacy. If we want to advance decentralized water systems, water literacy becomes a cornerstone, a key aspect that we must start to engage people by helping them understand how water works. And what has happened is in the last 100 years, because we have been so conveniently been served water, we have become disconnected from the natural water cycle as well as the human-made water cycle, water-engineered water system. So that has created a big hole because once we are now facing a water crisis of sorts, as community, they don't understand what do we, what can they do. And, and there's always a subconscious thinking that someone is going to look and take care of it. I'm sure like, you know, they just have a feeling that it has been taken care of until now. So I'm sure someone will look, take care of it. And that is where the need for water literacy becomes even more critical. So, so my uh, research and uh, you know, the tools that I'm developing and trialing with the community focuses on how can we make this uh, water literacy actionable in a sense that you educate them from the point of view of actionable uh, sharing, you know, actionable tools which they can use and which they can uh, help dis- make decisions for themselves, help them understand their own water system. Uh, that is where uh, I have started to try to focus on because unless we do that water literacy becomes a preaching exercise mm. right and mm. and it that's the danger that you can you know just be preaching water conservation no action is happening as a result of that well it's interesting if we look at a country like india being one of the largest countries um, in population mm. and, and in landmass yes. that that you've got, I guess, a challenge by being able to communicate these things across different types of geography, socioeconomic statuses. Mm -hmm. How are you engaging and trying to empower people across such divergent circumstances? That's a good question because, uh, yes, it is uh, a diverse geography and, uh, you know, diverse uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. If I, if I take a step back and look at what's happening at the government level, government of India is, has an unenvious job of trying to tackle such a wide, you know, huge demography and huge geography to make this uh, happen. And the fact that they are putting out a, a program 
heavily funded program, which promises to have uh, water supplied by tap to every household, which is not yet the case, uh, unfortunately. But they have committed to delivering it by 2022 for all rural households and for urban also they have committed to having it done by 2024. That's a good start. And I think, uh, you know, we should be able to have the opportunity to address some of the gaps as we go. Can I ask what your diagnosis for most of the buildings were? What, what was the treatment yeah. that was needed? Okay, so what I was finding is uh, it was very uh, surprising, but at the same time, not surprising because given my experience, this happens that whenever we are running short of water, we are always looking for another source. Often we are not looking at how efficient or inefficient our practices are. So it was same case that in these buildings, someone would come with uh, saying that, you know, we want to build rainwater harvesting because that is mandatory. And uh, it's a good thing that they must harvest rainwater. Uh, but I would uh, make sure that we would uh, conduct an audit and demonstrate that, yes, you should do rainwater harvesting. However, before you do that, just know that your liters per capita demand that you're currently consuming is way higher than you should, which means there's a lot of water you can save just by making changes to your indoor taps, you know. Secondly, the rainwater harvesting, because it was mandatory, many builders uh, did not do a good job, but they would make a show of having installed a rainwater harvesting. And they were actually not operating. And even the community didn't know, they assumed that it's working because the builder had told them they had no idea how it works and therefore they thought it's working, but it wasn't. So that was another thing we were discovering. The third thing was helpful for me to help them understand why you should know about your water use. So I called it water accounting. So there's water literacy and there's water accounting. In quite a few buildings, I was able to show them that the number of tankers that they were ordering was way higher than they needed. And they didn't know, they just guessed some number of tankers they would need and they had been ordering it for like two, three years. Uh, without taking account of, you know, do we need it? And of course, you know, people want to do water metering now, smart water meters. They have started to realize that there are always some people who are using more, much more than some water conserving members. So it should be equitable. So that also was another trend that is coming into metros where water is getting expensive, where they do want to go for smart water meters. Credit to the smart companies that have come up, the startups that have really developed some good technology. So initially they had to sell the individual meters, which was very expensive upfront cost. But then they changed the business model to saying that uh, you only need to pay for the installation cost. We will own the meters and we will send you the water uh, bills and the flat owners will get on their phone the daily water use. And also to the corporation, owners corporation, they'll, they'll send a way to build the flats. So which means they were providing data as a service rather than a selling product of a meter as a product. So these are, uh, I think, good signs. Uh, and of course, they already have on-site recycling happening because of the mandate. It's just that they should be able to make more use of it if they are able to operate and maintain that plant in a good way. So that is the challenge I found that many of them would turn off their sewage treatment plant because they just couldn't afford, because the builder would have put some very complicated system, a mechanical electrical system. And if one of the spare parts wouldn't work, they just couldn't afford or find a person who would be able to look after that. So they would they just simply turn it off and uh, you know buy more water 
for the in, to replace recycling than to run the plant. So that was another finding that you know people are struggling because they don't have the technical capacity to run the plant on their own. And in the rural side, there's a huge, huge literacy issue on how groundwater works. All the watershed interventions there are aimed at making the groundwater more sustainable because their agriculture and their own drinking water needs are uh, relying on groundwater. And it is possible because of the open spaces they have, uh, it is very much possible to create uh, interventions, physical interventions, which, but then they, they don't do it well because uh, community is not really, doesn't really understand how the surface water and groundwater interact. So they leave it to you know, the bureaucrats to do a shabby job. And, and that's where there's a lot of things you can do to help the community to learn about the groundwater science. Which is a lot easier to do when, you know, you have a decentralized approach yes. where you can sort of focus on the individual needs of specific that's areas. Right. But I'm interested to know how that translates into the political sphere. Like you've mm -hmm. got the Modi government, which I understand yes. to be quite conservative. That to me sounds mm -hmm. like it, there would be a sort of for something that is decentralized where they can offload some responsibility onto citizens. But is there like a coincidental like alignment of values there where like this is actually quite a progressive idea, but also it yeah. has like conservative appeal? Yes. So you're right, because they do want to have that control on the grassroots. They want to do it, but at the same time, keep the control with themselves. And it's a, in a way, it's a good thing because it, this Modi government is very good on marketing. So they have promoted heavily and also they, they make sure all those village leaders are coming online, talking to the prime minister. So the visibility, they're bringing that visibility that is needed through these conversations. And also it makes them feel good that as if they did it. So it's, it's okay. I mean, they can take the, the kudos for that because they are facilitating that awareness. But then what is missing is when they have this, every household should have a tap. The planning is missing in terms of the groundwater because uh, it is almost as if, you know, they're going to bring water from somewhere. They haven't specified where, but then will that tap have water in it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like every house should have a toilet. That campaign was on and they got the toilet and they all, most of them are used as, uh, you know, storage. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? So they, if they would have done the water thing first, then you have water for a toilet user, right? You, you can't have a toilet without the water. So that is all good signs that the intention is to make sure that they, these are community-owned because Modi government in Gujarat had set up some successful models of decentralized rural water systems. He has that experience. Uh, that it works and uh, he has that conviction that it's a good thing to actually allow the local community to take ownership because that's what is going to make it sustainable. You know, it's a mixed thing, but uh, watch and see what happens. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Bhakti. It's been uh, such a privilege to speak with you today. Um, Kat had mentioned that she'd heard that about the toilet program. So um, yes. it's funny how I've got to link up a few, of, a few things that we'd heard. So yeah, really, really appreciate your time today. Great. That concludes our discovery of the complexities of water in Asia and the work towards securing water justice for large diverse populations. We hope that you have taken some ideas to ruminate on and a new perspective on how water works in your life. 
As we move on to water justice in other parts of the world, we'll be considering more water justice concepts and discovering new ways to think and solve problems for water management. For now, if you found any of these interviews of particular interest, you can find out more information about our guests' work in the episode description. Please consider subscribing and sharing this episode as it helps spread the ideas of water justice. We hope you'll stay tuned to the Water Justice Podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.